Hi listeners and welcome back to the Get Cyber Resilient Show podcast. Today is episode 55 and we're going to take a look at the latest news that's happened in the cyber industry across the last couple of weeks. I chat with our resident cyber security experts, Brad and Gar, about the gas pipeline hack over in the US, an analysis of the shifting view on cyber insurance, and to find out about what your details might be being used for. But before we get into this week's episode, I thought, Gar, we should just take a quick reflection on episode 54 and uh, the first, I guess, cyber celebrity that we had on with Dimitri. And um, I was interested to just see how did you go? How did the nerves hold up in the interview process? Yeah, look, he was good. Uh, he's a he's a obviously a very clever and uh, you know prominent figure in cybersecurity. So there's definitely that that moment of imposter syndrome that kicks in. But uh, I spent a lot of time in the the research and put the questions together and, and got some help internally from Braden. So it felt you know pretty reasonable about what we were going to talk about. But um, yeah, it was once it's like anything. Like I think the once you're into the conversation, like it's all good. And he's uh, he's quite a lovely man. So yeah, it was good to get uh, get time with him. Uh, terrific. I thought you did a, a terrific job and uh, held it together very well. And um, that was very insightful questioning. And um, I think we all got a lot out of uh, hearing directly from him. So hooking into uh, the latest stories, um, I think we have been faced in the last two weeks with what's been definitely the largest um, high profile um, ransomware attack of 2021 so far. And that is the Colonial Pipeline hack. Um, it has made news headlines for all the wrong reasons um, in many aspects of this. I think there's a lot to unpack here. Um, Brad, be really interested in getting your take on on how you've seen this sort of story evolve um, and I guess it's, uh, what we can learn from it as well. Yes, yeah, certainly. And like I remember when I first started seeing the headlines, the first thing I was thinking of was the, the Texas power outages and I guess the, the, you know, the terrible effects where they, where they could get electricity and I guess enough, enough enough warmth to that state but yeah i honestly didn't think it had anything to do with cyber initially when i saw the disruption um we saw warnings coming out at a, at a government level advising people not to um, fill their plastic bags with gasolines the more i think about that maybe that was fake news but who knows <laughs> um but you know a, a real world impact nearly everybody talking about it but also then you know what is the dependency on on, on you know natural gas and then what is the dependency on that type of infrastructure to america like, I think even just starting there is, you know, there's a lot to unpack. Yeah, what, do you, what have you taken out of this? I mean, it's uh, we've spoken a lot recently around national critical infrastructure and the legislation that's coming here. Um, I think there's many layers to this one around, obviously, you know, the, the, the attack being on critical infrastructure, um, but then also the notion of reporting of ransomware, paying of ransoms or not paying ransoms, um, and what's actually happened with the uh, the group who perpetrated it um, and their sort of position since the uh, the social fallout as well. Yeah, look, it's a it's a whopper, um, timely as well, right? Biden had just done his hundred day plan for uh, critical energy uh, infrastructure in the U.S. So you know, of all the times to do this stuff. Um, Huge. I mean, as Brad said, first of all, like a whopper in terms of impact, big ransom that's been paid and big impact to the public. And I think, you know, we were talking before we, we started recording about, talk about poking the bear. You know, this is a, a huge thing to do for US citizens. And, you know, if everyone was around for, you know, previous times when people have gone after oil or interfered with oil in the US, like it's certainly not a, maybe not not the thing you would want to do. Um 
one of the it's not even funny but one of the things that i thought was interesting was how the the group that provided the ransomware and they do ransomware as a service right so they on sell this this stuff that was used to attack um colonial i think they've kind of realized the implications of what has just happened and they've tried to not walk back but you know sort of back away a little bit from nothing well yeah maybe some of the responsibility there's a little bit of a pr exercise has gone on i believe they've donated to charities they've basically said hey like we, we were going after the money we weren't trying to impact society and from from yeah from now on they're going to moderate the the people who are going to purchase the ransomware service from them so you know there's there's a, maybe a silver lining to this as going forward they're going to actually be a bit more responsible in terms of who they sell their their products to so the bad guys are going to be policing the bad guys to, to yeah to make sure it's, it's not done too so it's not too bad right like it's a win for everybody i think we, we should all feel good about this one honor among thieves hey um yeah it, it is interesting though like because if we like the you made a good point there gar in terms of i guess ransomware as a service and whilst this was a huge catastrophic attack you know like one of the largest ones we've seen in terms of disruption if we think about all the other attacks which hit organizations as well it's the same it's like phishing gets as a service it's highly automated highly scripted um an interesting thing in, in terms of the uncovering of this hack as well is it wasn't only the five million i think colonial paid but in total they found something along the lines of 90 million i believe in total payments across other companies which had paid ransom by the same service um but also the service has been taken down um no one knows who exactly did it by an unknown threat actor they're saying um they've taken down the service and the rest of the bitcoin that was sitting in that wallet is, is now disappeared as well and i think that is an important point we've spoken many times about you know to pay or not to pay the ransom um, and what happens from there. Um, but I think there's a clear thing here that, you know, it is funding, you know, the criminal activity. Um, and it's not just potentially the criminal activity of the ransom itself, um, but what those funds might be used for beyond that as well. Um, it's, a, it's a huge industry now, right? It's actually like a, an industry in its own right. Um, and it has very much evolved from, you know, the the couple of hundred dollar iTunes on, you know, personal accounts to this corporate, you know, attack vector. Um, and it's because the money in it is so high. So how do we really, you know, what's the role, I think, as well of, of government of looking at, you know, legislation? What do we need to do to try to stop this, you know, this complete scourge of ransomware and then really halt it at the source? I think there's a few things in that, Dan. Um, you know, if, if we had a magic wand, we would invent the technology that would stop this stuff in its track or, you know, get end users doing the right thing and all that stuff. Realistically, we know that's not going to happen because we're seeing these stories every day now. You know, it was a time when, you know, and, you know, even last year when we we three were kind of prepping for this, it was like there was probably one big, big story per week. Now it feels like there's one big story per day. And, you know, you're seeing that kind of exponential increase in the, the cadence and the impact of these uh, ransomware attacks. And so, you know, whatever, we, I don't think we've got a technical solution anytime soon. So then you start looking at what are the levers you have. And yeah, government is definitely one of them. And yeah, you can put sanctions on, you can make the, you know, the payment of Bitcoin a, an illegal activity. And that that's fine. I think that the issue there is that there's going to be short-term impact because realistically, uh, and we, we've talked about this, hey, like if you've got a hospital or if you've got critical infrastructure and something's locked out and you've got the option to potentially save lives or 
get energy back to a city, what do you do? You know, it's it's really easy to say don't pay the ransom and that's the law. But actually, you know, if the person somebody's going to potentially suffer or die because of that, then that gets really really tricky. And also potentially organizations shut down. You know, there's there's times where the doors shut in an organization because they can't get their data or services back online. And this could be one example. Uh, there's been plenty of examples last year where the the logos that were impacted came back and and not that we've forgotten, but everything's kind of okay again. Um, but that's, so that's one thing. I'm not going to steal the thunder for the next story because that I think may be something that is actually going to impact this more than government regulations. It's a really interesting area. And I think the, the last part of this that really got brought home was regarding the notion of actually it coming to life in the first place and reporting that there had been a cyber incident. Um, there is no, you know, mandatory reporting of a data breach in, in the US or of a cyber incident. Um, and so, you know, it feels as though many of these sort of attacks um, happen and there is impact, but they're not on such a large scale and therefore they never actually get reported. And therefore we're actually underestimating even how often this is occurring and what and the scale of the problem itself. Um, obviously in Australia, you know, we do try to have mandatory reporting um, to a certain degree um, and Critical Infrastructure Act and all of these things are trying to lay, you know, ground, I guess, for, for best practice to try to, uh, to help overcome these things, but also to understand the size of the problem of what we're actually trying to deal with. I think that's where America wants to go as well, though. Like, you know, Biden's been pretty pretty public in saying, look, we want you know, more government intervention in this this type of thing, been very public, even in his first 100 days, about uh, extra funding towards cyber. But you're right. Like, I mean, a, a lot of people are looking at this company and saying, look, you guys did the right thing, right? You know, like you publicly told everybody about it. You were honest about it. Paying the ransom, you know, potentially saved them X, you know, how much, I think over $100 million potentially because they got up a lot quicker and running. So did they actually do the wrong thing? Um, but yeah, it's just, a, it's, it's a very interesting situation and, and I hope they do get similar regulation over there that we do have in here. But again, I, to your other point, I think, you know, potentially what we're talking about next will um, kind of play a big part as well. Yeah, I think you know, the critical infrastructure plans and plays you're seeing globally, we're at a point where we can not do that. You know, Australia's got one, the US has got one, uh, I think the UK. UK you know, is coming here. Yeah. yeah, like it's starting to, I think the, the light bulb was finally flicked on in uh, in uh, governing, um, you know, in the politics and the, the sort of national conversation of how important this stuff is and, and more importantly, how unbelievably vulnerable we actually are. And I think that's the thing that's starting to dawn on people is you see colonial pipeline, okay, that's, you know, that's bad. And every time one of these things happen, it feels like surely, you know, that's the bit where we get really serious about this. But, you know, at, at some point, I think that's what we need. You know, we need to kind of buckle down, get the um, anything that's considered critical infrastructure, get them get them ticking, get them funded, get get security where it needs to be. And then hopefully we can all start breathing a little bit more easily. We, we just need to be careful as well, though. Like we need to make sure there's not a, not too much of an overreaction as well. Like, you know, there's been some pretty controversial encryption laws and yeah, I think we still still need to be mindful of our individual privacy as we you know, get more involved in private organisations as well. Yeah, I think that applies definitely for sort of healthcare and and you know the the step in legislation that you're starting to hear a little bit about. Um, but for me, and and we I think we talked about this. You know, when it's the the priority for keeping people alive or keeping energy flowing, 
you know, and OT, it's a well-worn conversation, the issues with OT versus IT and, you know, those legacy systems that have now been exposed to the internet. I, you know, I'm at a point where I just feel like, yes, there's, there's a, a conversation that has to be had, but I feel like we need to go pretty hardcore to, to catch up. I think that's the problem. There's such a gap in it. We're so far behind and, you know, there's yeah. always no baseline. So, like, you have exactly. to enforce it, right? Yep. Because, I, I mean, that's not to get into the weeds and the politics, but I think it's really easy for the, the sort of profits to be prioritized and sometimes actually it costs a lot to do security or cybersecurity well. So, it's easy to kind of kick that down to the next quarter because, the you know, the analysts are going to look at a company and say, well, ooh, you know, what's going on here? Whereas if it's forced from a regulatory perspective, it levels the playing field and it pushes everybody to do the same thing because you don't Bare have minimum. a choice. Indeed. And uh, as you both alluded to, I think one of the issues around the decision of whether to pay ransom or not to pay um, is whether you feel as though you have some cyber insurance maybe at the back end that might actually therefore you know, help uh, you know, in terms of that payout and how actually help cover you as well. So... Um, and it's an area that obviously the insurance companies have been really, I guess, having to grapple with as well as they've probably seen a lot more claims come through um, and really trying to understand the policies and what they cover. Um, and we've seen that um, there's been, uh, I guess, a, a pullback um, from AXA, um, probably one of the largest uh, insurance companies in the world um, around what they will cover. Um, and then some consequences of um, when, they, uh, when they've decided to actually change their coverage as well, Brad. Yeah, it's um, cyber insurance is something we've been talking about for a while now. And I'm sure everyone's you know going through the annual reviews and agreeing to something new soon. Um, it should come as no surprise to most that premiums have gone up. Um, in some instances, like across the board, um, one one report we're reading uh, by insurance brokers Marsh, they're saying thirty percent just in the last year. Um, we're seeing an over thirty percent increase in premiums in the United States as well, and just under thirty percent in Britain with twenty nine percent. So. Definitely across the market, and it, it's, it comes as no surprise, right? Like I can imagine a couple of years ago, people would have been loved to offer up cyber insurance with, with extended policies, but the amount of damage or cost caused by some of these cyber attacks, is, as we know, is absolutely ridiculous. So it's of no surprise that some of these insurers now are, are not as you know willing to start paying out on ransomware payments. It feels to me like we're basically all trying to get flood insurance and we all live in a floodplain. And, you know, at some point the the insurance companies are kind of thinking, yeah, this just the math doesn't add up. And let's be honest, you know, of all the organizations that are out there, the insurance companies are really, really good at figuring out what, uh, you know, what are the odds and how do we work the numbers so that we, you know, we make profits. And if they're backing away from this stuff, I mean, that points to the the size of the problem. And, you know, I said I didn't want to steal thunder from, you know, the, the the previous section, but this is the thing. If they're pulling away from payment, where's that money going to come from? Because it's so far it's provided, I would say, maybe a little bit of a buffer. You know, if you've got an insurance company that and the clause happens to be something that includes, a, you know, a payment of Bitcoin or it turns out to be cheaper to do that than try and do remediation activities or whatever, you take that away, are, are, are the organization's going to pay the, the cost themselves? Like I... You know, is that the the thing that pulls the rug from underneath ransomware? Or do the organisations still feel compelled to have to make the payment and then, then just have to, you know, write it off as a loss? Um, which I think points more to your, your previous point that, like, it's preparedness that all of this points to, right, is, is that we need to be more prepared for the fact that, and, and I think a lot of commentators have said this notion that it's, you know, 
it's not it's not if it's when right um and what was Dimitri's line? I think it's, you know, there's two types of organizations, those that know that they have been hacked and those that haven't realized yet. Um, so I think that there's, you know, this surge of understanding that, you know, like you say, and insurance premiums is a great indicator, right? If it is going up, this probably means that it's gonna it's happening to everybody and it's, you know, far more likely than it than it previously was. So I just think it points to to preparedness. Um, and you say it may stop the ransomware or it might just be that companies are writing that off, but I think they've got to maybe look at moving their money into how do they be prepared in the first place because once you're, you're under attack and you're in that environment, like you say, you're at that pointy end and needing to make that decision very quickly, um, you know, for very, you know, um, potentially very large consequences, not just financial, right? And that's uh, something that when put under pressure, people will make those decisions and choices. I mean, something like this is good for the board though, right? Like, I mean, if you're trying to explain that, you know, our premiums are going to go up if we don't invest in cybersecurity, it's such a tangible example of, of, of why to invest in cyber earlier and, you know, and why that should be a priority for your business. Um, just on the back end of that as well, so obviously the AXAX or Access, sorry, in France, they're stopping their coverage around ransomware payments. Um, but four days later, their, their Asian entity got um, hit by ransomware. Um, quite a common one, which has been doing the grounds kind of in our, our region, uh, Avedon. Um, there's also the, the FBI and the Australian Cybersecurity Centre put uh, an alert uh, about Avedon last week as well. So um, very, very topical. I wonder who does their insurance for uh, ransomware payments. It's turtles all the way down. <laughs> Uh, do you think it was coincidence, Brad, or are we uh, are we reading too much into it? I think we're reading too much into it, but you never know these days. Everything's connected, right? It uh, wouldn't surprise me at all. It's a warning shot across the bow. <laughs> One of the uh, topics that we have covered previously is is what happens to your details. So if if your details as a citizen have been breached in some way, um, and they've been taken and and the notion of identity theft and that what then is what's the consequence what actually can happen to them and we've recently seen um, in the US an example of of I guess the outcome of how that these details can be used um, in a very I guess practical sense um, for from people but then what that means in terms of how identity theft can be used and then the flow-on impact to the individuals as well um, Brad, this is uh, under the heading of notion of sort of stealing people's personal details uh, in order to get gig work in the US. Yeah, no, that's an interesting article um, over at uh, Vice Motherboard. And I think just kind of backing off some recent news that we just, I just got made aware of um, Domain, uh, the, uh, the popular website in Australia has suffered a data breach as a result to a phishing email. Um, so, you know, talking about, you know, people's details being, you know, potentially compromised, the amount of information that you might have to apply for a house or, or get a loan as an example, even pre-approval. Um, in terms of what this story looks at, it's kind of looking at the idea that people are taking uh, people's passports, uh, their social, social security numbers in America, other sensitive information like that, selling it online or in some instances renting it on a monthly basis uh, to then allow or to try and help people who are illegal immigrants in America. Um get work and, and get gig work really so deliver food and ubers and, and drive you know ubers, ubers i guess um but just phenomenal in the, in the instance that you know we talk a lot about the um you know how details get breached but the real world impact of it you know has some quite lasting and long-term effects as well and does affect a lot of people by the looks of it 
definitely. And uh, it's one that has come to life because they've actually tracked down the people that did it. And so I guess the law enforcement has stepped in to try to play that role of, um, of you know, shutting that down. Um, but you wonder, like, you know, the next, you know, as a service pops up for this as well. Yeah, I had a, fr- I had a friend who got um, popped by this years ago and it was actually kind of in reverse. And I remember um, she was complaining that she was just trying to save money for something and she kept never being able to get to that right amount she needed. Um, and it turned out that for the past three months, somebody had been using her credit card for their Uber account in Los Angeles, just, you know, nonstop. And because it was just such small payments, it, you know, it comes up as Uber on your phone. Everyone uses Uber on their phone, right? But it's just interesting, I guess, to think about, yeah, what people would go to, but also then the potential impact on the future, right? So let's say I lost my job as an example and, you know, I needed government support. Um, what happens if somebody had already claimed that in my name as an example, you know, and I was destitute, like, you know, that, that could have real world lasting impacts and you know, potentially affect my health and, and many other things as well. Yeah, thanks, Brad. I think it's uh, really highlighting the the way that data can be used in so many different ways. We, we don't, we wouldn't necessarily think of and, you know, that your details have been stolen and then all of a sudden it's being used for somebody else to get a job in order to, you know, to do a rideshare service and stuff. That affects your tax as well, doesn't it, right? Because then at tax time it'll pop up. Yeah, it has heaps of implications. All these implications and flow-on effects of it. So, yeah, definitely it's uh, an interesting area. And um, as you said, uh, as we've sort of gone to air recording this uh, domain in Australia, um, their attack, and it's an interesting one because the um, they've been sending emails to those people asking for a, a prepayment deposit on for renters. Um, so it just seems like so far nobody has uh, fallen for it, which is great. Um, but certainly it's a, you know, a word of warning if you're uh, – in the rental market and we've been on the domain site, um, beware if you get an email asking for a prepayment because it's, uh, it's certainly not a real thing that they're, uh, they're, they're pursuing. That, that as an industry, you know, that, that's where such big sums of money get sort of transferred around. And we had, uh, we had the talk last week at Elsert and, and one of the, the people we had on uh, was one of Amy's friends and talked about the, it was BEC in that case, but, you know, it was a $65,000 transfer to criminals that you can't get back. And I think, yeah, looking at industries that are ripe for these kind of attacks, you know, real estate, it must be very close to the top of the list, just given the, the sums of money that get transferred around and not just, you know, purely from the, the property buying perspective, but if they know that you've just bought a property, then are you somebody who's going to be doing renovations? And, you know, do you use that as a way to figure out what's going on there and, you know, jump in and, and essentially do BC or, or whatever it may be. So, yeah, and it's not the first time, right? We've seen real estate hit multiple times over the years, just given the amounts of money that gets uh, transferred. Yeah, exactly. And it's, uh, I think it's going to continue to, to occur, right, unfortunately, because you say, because it is a, a profitable area um, for people to be really focused on and, and trying to get, and it's also that time of, um, you know, high stress, right? So it's one of those things where we always know when people are, under pressure, like we saw at the start of the pandemic, looking for information or during the vaccine rollout or bushfires or all of these things where you're under pressure. And we know that, you know, moving house is one of those times as a life event that um, people are under significant pressure, time poor, trying to make decisions move quickly. Um, you know, you can get caught out quite easily, unfortunately. Um, and, and, you know, through no fault of their own, that's for sure. So it's a Certainly, something to continue to uh, be wary of and, and keep an eye on as uh, as this one evolves as well. 
Is there, you know, looking at that gig worker, going back to that, is there, what's the solution to stuff like that in terms of, you know, validating identities? Because like to Bradley's point, I mean, and then you down too, like the, the role on impact of this stuff is, it's not small, actually, it's quite significant. And it's not just that somebody's bringing or, del you know, delivering food or driving people around in your name. It's the on flow to tax to all the other things that, you know, kind of uh, are related to employment. Like, what do you think in terms of a solution to this? Is it some kind of two-factor auth for Uber or... I mean, we're like, kind of luckier, luckier here though, right? Like, because in America, they have like credit reporting and that whole thing's a mess, right? You basically have to pay to then, mm. you know, and then it's absolute mess, right? Like in Australia, at least, I think we have a lot of good protections built into law in place already, which, I mean, that's, that being said, I haven't had my identity stolen. And from what I hear, it is absolute pain when it happens. Mm. So I... But I was going to say biometrics, and I think we talked about this the other week, but I think there has to be some type of physical authentication to prove that I'm a, this is me and this is me accessing or making a payment. Is it, yeah, I mean, is it almost like the, you know, the, the high-level authentication stuff that you've got to go to a third party with a passport, you know, prove who you are, you know, rather than details-based, it's, you know, to your point, it's here I am as a human being and here's the, you know, the government's identification that supports that rather than I just happen to know your, your dog's name and the, the, <laughs> the name of the street that you grew up on and your date of birth, you know, that you, you need more to do stuff like this, especially when it's employment related. I, and actually, I've no idea what it takes yeah. to be an Uber driver. Yeah, so a couple of things on that. Um, so w the actual property market in Australia has done this really well as part of the digitization to to transferring of property. So buying and selling um, has gone completely digital in this country. Um, and the part of that process of that is, is called the VOI or the verification of identity process. Um, so er anybody who is a buyer or seller actually needs to go through that verification process in order to then be part of actually the transfer of the property itself. Um, and so, and there's a whole range of businesses have started up around offering VOI as a service and being able to do that on behalf of, you know, law firms and conveyances around the country and provide that, that service so that it can be done reasonably, you know, more effectively, easily, because this was seen as a barrier potentially to property sales, right? If it wasn't done well um, and, you know, creating too much of a barrier. So there is actually the notion in Australia around um, VOI services um, and they're used specifically in that use case in that industry at the moment. Um, but is it possible for that to expand and actually take on a broader role for verifying your identity for a range of different things? Like you say, is it, you know, do you use, you have your details as part of your VOI app? Do you use that for job applications rather than actually going through the process of trying to do it again? Um, you know, so I think there is the opportunity to think about um, that authentication process, if you like, and how that might actually play out as potentially a digital service across many services in, across our economy rather than just property at the moment. And I think that's why the domain one, you see they're attacking renters because they don't have the same VOI as part of that process um, and therefore it's not as stringent in that as well. So it's it's somewhat of an easier attack vector, if you like, rather than the buying and selling, which is probably the more lucrative part, but the harder part to get into as well. Yeah, definitely. It would be so good to see that. I mean, when you when you talk about that thing of uh, proving identity, an efficient way to do that, because I feel like, you know, so many times per year, you've got to 
you know, send all these details in, all you know, all the the information about yourself, and you got to have this, you know, hundred points of identity. You know, that's sort of centralized. Do it once, do it really, really well, and then have some way to link it back so that you know that's trustable, and that'll be phenomenal just in terms of like being efficient as a society too. I think this is where blockchain eventually potentially helps, right? Like the only way it works is it has to, it can't be too centralized. Like it has to be decentralized. Otherwise then it's just one entity controlling everything, which, which is part of the problem I think we're seeing with a lot of these different centralized platforms. But then we also have too many of these platforms. So you have to sign up to every single one, right? Uh, we probably don't suffer from that as much in Australia, but again, if we think of credit reporting and stuff in America, it's like the wild west over there, right? But no, I think, I mean, I agree with both of you. I think it's a good system they have for property ownership and verification in Australia and there should be or you know there's potential other applications in the real world um, but it'd be good to see you know the government take a lead on this and you know potentially integrate it with smartphone technology or something you know QR code, whatever it is right like I think we're doing a lot with technology right now and it's probably a pretty easy link back in there somewhere you mean to get chips implanted in our in our heads or something. Said that so the that, other you know, week, like, didn't I? RFIDs. Did you? Yeah, yeah, there you go. Maybe that's it. You know, at birth, you get a, a little RFID that's, you know, uh, encrypted and linked to your biometrics and can't be changed. And that's the thing that is used to authenticate. It's like a 4K camera in it too and just records the whole time. <laughs> I'm sure there's another way, but uh, we'll leave that maybe for, <laughs> for another time. Uh, thank you both for your time today. Uh, yeah, looking forward to... Uh, episode 56 next week um, we have Ben Jones the founder and CEO of Jumpstart Security so looking forward to that conversation as well what can you tell us about Ben yeah not Ben for, for quite a while he's, uh, he's a good guy they, they've started a security company that's focusing on the sort of SMB space which I think is quite interesting and um, some of the particular challenges that happen there uh, my take on that is that helping SMBs helps everybody. You know, we've had that conversation multiple times where it's all connected. So, you know, I think it's an important thing that the, those guys are doing. Um, and then I'm also uh, recording tonight with Jenny Radcliffe, who people may know as the social engineer. So she's, uh, I've, I've, we've chatted in prep for the recording and she's a phenomenally interesting person. She was on Darknet Diaries recently. So I'm definitely looking forward to that one too. Terrific. A couple of great episodes to look forward to as we uh, as we go forward towards the end of uh, the financial year in Australia as well. So, uh, again, thank you both for your time. Thank you all for listening. Uh, this was the Get Cyber Resilient show for this week, and uh, we'll be back on the airwaves soon. Bye.